All right, safe and secure from Romans chapter 8, verses 31 through 39. You know, there's actually nothing like dangerous weather to kind of make us feel unsecure. Um, it kind of unsettle you. So as Hurricane Dorian kind of makes its way, um, we're reminded just kind of how wild and unsettling the world we live in can be. And I remember as a kid growing up in Alabama, for, there it was tornadoes. We didn't worry about hurricanes in North Alabama, but we did worry about tornadoes. And we had to do the little drill, right, where you uh, left your room, went out in the hallway, got down on your knees and, and, and buckled up against the wall. And we had to do that drill about once a month or so just so kids would know and we would know what to do in case of a drill. And so, and as a kid, you're kind of thinking nothing like, you know, we're never going to use this. That's just nothing bad happens. But as an adult, you know bad things do happen. And so these things make us a little more nervous. And so I want to talk to you this morning, though, about this idea of safety and security. Um, spiritually speaking, I want you to understand something this morning. Known and felt security breeds fearlessness. We live more fearless lives the more secure we feel. And the less secure and the less safe we feel, the more we, the more we tend to have fear, the more we tend to have anxiety. And from a spiritual standpoint, um, God really wants us to have this, uh, this, this fearlessness to, to live our lives, to live for his glory, to, to advance his mission. And that comes from a sense of safety and security that we have in our relationship with God. Let me kind of prove my point about fearlessness and safety and security. Um, have you ever been to the top of the Empire State Building? Or just any skyscraper. But that one in particular, I remember the first time I did that. Um, you know, I, I don't ever in any way remember having any sense of fear when I was at the top of the Empire State Building. In fact, you know, you're shopping, you're taking pictures. I mean, you're not thinking uh, fearful thoughts, really. But, but on the way up, right, uh, when you get in the elevator, I'll be honest, I got in there and I remember thinking, you know, the, the ride up's a lot quieter than it is when you get to the top because, you know, I think it's two elevators you had to take to get to the top of it. And you're thinking, how old are these elevators? When's the last time this elevator was serviced? You know, things like that. Because it's a long elevator ride to the top of the Empire State Building. It'll be the longest elevator ride that you ever take unless you get stuck in an elevator somewhere. But once you get to the top, you know, everything's good at the top. It's the on the way up and the on the way down part that you're a little bit more like, ah. And, you know, when we know our foundation is secure, we have a confidence about us. And when, when that foundation feels a little bit rattled, we have a little less confidence about us because security breeds fearlessness. And if you want to live life fearlessly for the sake of loving your neighbor and loving God and living for his glory, we have to have a sense of security about us because true safety and security only comes in relationship with God. Only God can make us feel truly safe and can make us truly safe. So as we close out this chapter here, Romans chapter 8, and this is the, the fourth message in this chapter. Um, today, as we look at it, this last section really celebrates, yes, the love of God we're going to see. But also, as Douglas Moo, one of the scholars, points out, it's a celebration of our security. It's a celebration of the believer's security, and it really is. And so deep down, I think all of us want to know one thing. We want to know everything's going to be okay. Um, and that's something every human being wants to know. That, that's not unique to you because of your generation or because of your, you know, your age or your gender. Or anything. Everybody, every person on the planet deep down wants to know everything's going to be okay. And the only way to truly know everything's going to be okay is to be in right relationship with God. And as you get to this end of this chapter here, uh, Paul is celebrating the fact that we can know Everything's going to ultimately be okay. So look with me at Romans chapter 8, verse 31 through verse 39. 
Apostle Paul says, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God. Who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? Verse 36. As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. What an incredible passage. If that's not one of your favorite passages of scriptures, it ought to be, okay? So when you read this, if you're like me, your mind's working, you're thinking, nothing, Paul? I mean, he lists a lot of things. They're like, nothing can separate us, right? And, and, and Paul's emphatically, no, I'm certain of this. This is a picture of absolute security and triumph in Christ. And this is a passage that is for the believer. So we can look for security in a lot of things, right? As human beings, we can look for security. We look for it. We want security in our job. We want security with, with our family structure. Uh, we want security in our income, which is the reason the whole thing with the job. We want security in our relationships. We like to know we can count on people. But ultimately, we know death is going to take all those things. We all die. And so if our ultimate security is coming from those things, if there's no sense of security coming from anywhere else, then we're going to live with a real sense of fear in our life. But in Christ, Paul is showing us here, we can have a security with God that's eternal, that lasts forever. And that's a really big deal. Notice in the text, there's a series of five questions, all right? Rhetorical questions. The first question is, what shall we say to these things? There in verse 31. Now, this, this question is connecting us to the rest of, of Romans 8 in particular, and really five through chapter 5 through 8, but in particular Romans 8, where you remember we started this whole, this whole chapter with there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then we talked about how we're joint heirs uh, with Christ Jesus. They're children of God and joint heirs with Christ. And then we talked last week about how God is working for our good and for his glory if we're in Christ. And the point is, when Paul says, so what shall we say to these things? The point is, is that these truths that we've talked about have consequences. They show us that we are incredibly secure. You see, if God is for us, he goes on to say, who can be against us? He goes to the second question. And he's, he's building, right? He's building an argument to make the case for our security about how when you look at all the truth we've talked about in Romans 8 that is ours as children of God, wow, we are incredibly secure. He says, if God has given his son for us, how will we not, how we not give us all things? That's the third question about God's provision. He says, who's going to condemn us is the fourth question. If God has justified us in Christ. And who shall separate us from the love of Christ? So those five rhetorical questions contain a lot of truth. And Paul is using these questions to teach us 
Because all the answers to the questions are in the text. He wants you to think about these things. And here's why I think he brings it up in this fashion. I think it's because sometimes we have unbiblical answers to these questions. Our mind can get, get, can get off track and we don't begin to not think biblically. So when you think about truths like the ones in Romans 8, and in particular verses 5 through 8, uh, the, 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 uh, the chapters 5 through 8, you come up with, well, but, what if, well, what about my situation, Paul, you know, I mean, I know this, but, and, we, and our mind begins to go on these, we get, begin to get distracted. And you read a verse like, if God is for you, who can be against you? And you think, yeah, but you don't know some of the people that are against me. Some of the things that are against me. I feel like everything sometimes is against me. Or you think, well, he says here that, you know, Christ has died for me and been risen again. And, but then we fail to press that deeply, uh, the implications of it deeper into our heart. We begin, to, we begin to put it over here in this thing that has to do with forgiveness of sin and, and something that we maybe discovered as a, as, as a new believer, but, but we don't really place it in a lot of context for our life today. We begin to worry about the gossip and slander or false charges of others instead of resting in what God says about us. And, or we worry about the charges of our own conscience maybe for, from our past failures that we haven't forgiven ourselves for instead of worry about what God says about us. The point is we need these rhetorical questions and the answers that Paul gives to them because we need to think about these things because when we, uh, we inform our mind with this truth, it gives us, we, we begin to learn and know that we are secure, but there's a difference in knowing our security in Christ and feeling secure, all right? There's a difference in being safe, being secure, and feeling that way. If you've ever fl- flown in an airplane, I feel rather safe on an airplane, and so you know, I grew up in a small town and didn't, you know, the idea of travel for us was we went to the beach seven hours south. We didn't get on airplanes and stuff. So I, I flew on a plane the first time in, in college. And, but I did a lot of flying between like my early 20s and I would say my early 30s. I did a lot of flying in those years with the ministries I worked for. And so it just kind of became second nature, right? Get on air, you don't even really think about it, right? I'd go to sleep before the plane ever took off. And I had a kind of a bad experience with a flight one time. And since then, ever since then, there's just a little more nervousness when I would get on an airplane. But you know, when you cognitively in your mind, you know when you get on an airplane that you are pretty safe, generally speaking. I mean, Superman says it's the safest form of flying. So, or safest form of traveling. Yeah, I kind of messed that up. But you get the point. It's, it's generally speaking, it's safer than driving, they tell us. So you know you're safe. But when you get in the air and you get real bad turbulence, right? And you feel that little, you know, I don't care who you are. Your stomach kind of goes, you know, if you were asleep, now you're probably awake. You, you're a little let more nervous than you, than you were because there's a difference in kind of knowing in your mind, well, I'm, I'm safe. I mean, I'm gonna, you're going to hit turbulence and feeling safe. There's a difference in those things. And so we need to not only know it in our heart, we, in our minds, we need to know it in our hearts because at the end of the day, we live life in turbulence. The whole Christian life is lived among turbulence, and right? And the things are dropping and things are bumpy and trials and tribulations and difficulties and pains and temptations and all these things happen and give you reasons to feel less secure in your relationship with God. So you need to constantly be informing your mind with the truth of God's word and praying for God to take that and press it into your heart because that's the work of the Holy Spirit so that it can affect both how you think, how you feel, all those sort of things. Because sometimes you're going to feel a certain way But facts and feelings are not the same things. You've got to inform your mind of the truth and choose to believe 
the facts of God's word and not always believe your feelings. And if we're secure with God in our relationship with him, and if we are secured by God in that relationship, then there is literally nothing, nothing to fear in life and death. And mentally, if you're a believer, I think you probably know that. But we don't always live that way. So I want to show you three things in this text this morning about your security with God, okay? And that will hopefully help just kind of re-energize that for us this morning. And if you're not a follower of Christ this morning, you're not sure if you're a follower of Christ, these are all things that God is inviting you into today. These are all things that can be yours in Jesus. This is, man, what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And the first one is this. If you're a believer, you can say this this morning. You can say, I am secure in my position before God. That is a a statement that if you're a true follower of Christ this morning, you can know and that God would want to speak to your heart today is that I am secure in my position before God. So let's walk through these uh, first few verses together. He says, what shall we say to these things, right? If God is for us, who can be against us? Listen, Paul wants us to see here God is for us. And if that is not changing, it doesn't matter who comes against us. So this, this phrase here, what does he mean that God is for me? Well, it's referring to our eternal standing before God in Christ. If we're true followers of Christ, if God has saved you, if he's changed your heart and he's given you and you've rested in Christ, you've believed that Jesus died in your place and rose again and you've surrendered your life over to him, right? If that has happened, then God is working for your good. God is working for his glory in your life. None of those things are changing. Your salvation's not changing. He's for you. He's working for your good. And he's speaking on your behalf. He's not simply rooting for you. He's not, he's not like you're just like your cosmic cheerleader. No, 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 no. He is your defender. He is your protector. He is your father. He is the one who, man, he is the one who is assuring that you have eternal life. And that's a really big deal. He, he's way more than a cosmic cheerleader. He is for you, and he is fighting for you. The late scholar John Stott points out how this is a huge deal in light of the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, you'll see times times where God will speak, where Israel will sin or something, and he'll say, I have this against you, right? And then this judgment will come. In fact, you see it in Revelation with the seven churches. Jesus writes them, they get this letter from Jesus. You think, oh, this is going to be great, right? And, uh, but for most of them, the letter's kind of like, hey, you're doing this well, but here's what I have against you. Let me just tell you, there is no more terrifying thing in the world, more, no more terrifying phrase in all the universe than to have the God of the universe say, I have this against you, or I am against you. I mean, it's, inc- it's critical that we know God is for us. And the thing is, Due to our sin, as we've learned in Romans, we, we, we don't, the natural state of things between us and God is not, hey, you know, things are great. It's I'm separated from God because of my sin. And if I die in my sin, man, I'm going to reap this idea of God coming against me and my sin and my rebellion towards him. Because what has happened is every single one of us have turned our backs on God. We've rebelled against God and we've shook our fist at God and we've declared war with God. And that's not a war that you can win. And so what Paul is celebrating here is that in the gospel, through faith in Christ, what has happened is the one who we, we were like a sworn enemy of, the one we've drawn to the line of the sand again, and then we've rebelled against, and we've sinned against, and we've rejected, and we've made idols, and we've worshipped other things, and we haven't given him the glory he's deserved. He has saved us and rescued us and made us his family, his children, and his friends. And now, the one who we were going to reap wrath from is for us. 
That's an incredibly amazing thing. So Paul's point is this. Listen, if that's true, if the God of the universe is for you in Christ, when he says who can be against you, the point is not that nobody's against you. The point is why does it matter in the grand scheme of things? A lot of things are against us, right? The world, the flesh, the devil are against you. Persecution can come against you. People may hate you, reject you, disdain you. People were, there were people that were against Christ, right? I mean, a lot can come against you. That's not the point. The point is what can they do if they're up against God? I mean, they can't, there's certain things that they can take and certain things that they can't take from you. And what is most ultimately of importance is secure with him. You know, when I was a kid, one of my favorite little games, I had a little, the original little Nintendo system. It came out in 1985. And I remember I got it when I was about six, seven years old. And a game that came out was Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. And I loved Mike Tyson's Punch-Out. Because back then, Mike Tyson was like, you know, the world's greatest fighter or whatever. And, and so, and he was, you know, this most intimidating fighter probably since Muhammad Ali at that time. And so he had this video game. And so the video game, if you, just to kind of let you know how it worked, for those of you who have no clue what I'm talking about, you were like this little dude, right? And you would look at the video game. He looked like a dude that was like five foot two. And you're making your way up through the boxing ranks, right? And so the first guy you would fight would be Glass Joe. That was his name, Glass Joe, because he had a glass jaw, right? He was easy to beat. You could beat Glass Joe in like 20 seconds. That was to build your confidence so you would continue to play the game, right? Then you get to the next guy. He was pretty easy too because they all had weaknesses, right? And if you learn their weakness, you'd knock them out. And you'd go all the way through these guys. Some of them you'd have to fight twice and they'd be tougher the second time around. And then at the end, you fought Mike Tyson. And he was better than any of them, right? I never beat Mike Tyson, I'm sad to say. In fact, there was a lot of them I never beat. I wasn't that good at the game. But it always frustrated me for this very reason. Why do I have to be the scrawny guy? I want to be Mike Tyson, right? And so I always wanted the game to change. And I wanted to be Mike Tyson. And I wanted to pummel everybody else instead of getting pummeled by Mike Tyson. And at the end of the day, as we face the trials and the suffering and the temptation of all the things we go through in life, right, and we get pummeled by these things, you can't be God. That's a, that's a heretical false theology that other people teach that we don't believe here. But you can have God be for you. Uh, you can have God fight for you. You can, you, can have the one, you can have the one, the strongest one, the greatest one, the, you can have him step into the ring on your behalf. And that is an incredible, incredible truth. That Paul, you, and, and listen, if you're in Christ today, if you're a believer in Christ, that is what has happened. And now God is for you in the midst of all this. And that's how secure your position is before God. Because God is actually for you. Now look at verse 32. He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Paul's saying, God's going to take care of you. And if you don't believe me, look at the cross. I mean, he provided the ultimate sacrifice so that you can be saved. You don't think he's going to take care of you? You think he's going to be stingy towards you? You think he's going to be weak in his provision towards you? He didn't withhold his son. What's he going to withhold? You, know, you don't understand. I really need God to do this. And he hasn't done this. So how in the... Listen, if he really thinks you need it, he let his son die. He sent, he just let, he sent his son to die for you. What in the world is he not going to give you that you ultimately need? Not a stinking thing, right? And sometimes, yes, God may make us wait. Sometimes God may say no. He may say not right now because he knows better than we do, right? Because he's God. 
But the point is, man, everything ultimately needed to bring you to ultimate safety and security with God in relationship with him, right standing with him forever, God will give and God will provide. Your final salvation, you're standing before God, you're being made like Christ. If you're in Jesus today, it, man, it is as, it is as certain as Jesus rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. If you're in Christ today, it's for you. And the cross proves that God will provide all you need to get where he's taking you. Doesn't prove that he'll give you everything you want. But it does mean that he'll give us what we need to get to where he wants us to go. Verse 33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. That word justification, we spent a lot of time on that a couple months ago in, in, the, in Romans chapter 4 and chapter 5. And it means to be declared righteous is what the word really means. And so when he says, who shall bring any charge against you? God, it's God who justifies. His point is this, God has declared you right. If you're a believer in Christ, God has declared that you're righteous, that you're in right standing with him. So why does it matter what anybody else says against you? Anybody else, including yourself. The most important thing that can ever be declared about you has been done in Christ if you're a believer. God has said you're righteous. Verse 34, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God. He says he's indeed an interceding for us. In other words, it's Christ who has sealed my eternity. Paul's reminding us here who and how our position has been secured. Who secured it and how it's been secured. Jesus secured it and he did so by dying for our sins and being raised from the dead. And now he's at the, at the right hand of the Father, the right hand of God, he says. And that means he's in the place of authority. In other words, the, the one who's in the place of authority is the same one who laid down his life for you. That should be reassuring. And he says he's praying for you. Listen, last week the Holy Spirit was interceding for you. This week, God the Son is interceding for you. Listen, you, you've got ultimate prayer warriors. You are secure if you're in Christ. Nothing can shake that. God is for you. Look at the cross. Look at your salvation. You've... You've got the assurance of eternal peace and joy and all that if you're in Christ. Your position, your standing of righteousness before God is secure. And if you're here this morning and say, well, I don't know that I'm even there. I don't know that, that that's happened in my heart and in my life that I've ever really turned from my sin and embraced Christ as Lord. Well, that's what God's inviting you into is that kind of secure position. To stop working to get some right standing with God that you can't achieve on your own and to rest in what Jesus Christ did in his death for you and his resurrection and allow Jesus to give you the standing before God that you need. To have Jesus' righteous standing before God. That's what happens when we believe the gospel. Here's something else about our security. Number two, I am secure in God's love for me. That sounds simple, but man, Paul he is really mining some depths here. He says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution? Right? He's making the list. Famine, nakedness, danger, sword. And then he quotes from the Old Testament here. He says, for your sake we are being killed all the day long and we are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. That is a, that's a difficult text, right? I mean, that's a painful text. And the point that Paul's making is that these things do happen. All these bad things listed, these dangers are real. And they were real threats to the early church. And they're real threats. They can be threats to us. They are certainly threats to believers in other parts of the world today. These, these things really happen. And God doesn't promise us that they won't happen. What he promises in this text is that they can't separate us from his love for us. He's highlighting the love of Christ here. 
But he's, he's reminding us that no matter what comes into our lives, and even the most painful things, that these things cannot drive a wedge between us and God or between us and Christ. Look at what he says down in verse 38. I'm sure that neither death nor life nor angels nor rulers nor things present or things to come, powers, height, depth, anything in all creation will be able to set us, separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he's like, if you didn't understand me in the first part, let me come back now. If you didn't understand me when I said nothing can separate you from the love of Christ, let me show you nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ. Because these things are, he says, the love of God in Christ, because we're assured of these things if we're in Christ Jesus. Jesus has secured this place for us. He says, neither death nor life can separate us. So he starts with the ultimate, right? He's saying, there's nothing in life that can happen, nothing in death that can happen that can separate you from that. He says, no angel, no ruler, so no, no demon, no angel, no spiritual power, nothing, nor things present, nor things to come. There's nothing in your life today that can separate you from God's love. There's nothing in your life that can come into, or something that can come into your future. So I don't even know everything about the future. Well, God does. And he says, nothing can separate you from my love for you. Or, or power, no power. What kind of power? No spiritual power, no earthly power, no government power, no evil regime, no de demonic force, not Satan himself. Nothing can separate. And then he gets no height, no depth. In other words, space is nothing to God. Time is nothing to God. He's already showed us that with things present and things to come. He's saying that God is not limited in any way by anything that you can conjure up in your mind. In fact, he says, just to make it clear, or anything else in all of creation. In other words, nothing that you can think of or conjure in your mind can separate you from God's love. That word separate means what you think it means. It means to, to leave or to divide. God's love's not going to leave you. It's not going to be split from you. It simply means that nothing can get in the way of God's love for his people. Nothing can change God's love for his children. Nothing can make God stop loving his people. To put it clearly, nothing can keep any believer in Christ from being a beneficiary of the relentless love of God. See, we, we can be separated from people. We can be separated from good circumstances. We can be separated from our job, from our family, um, from our homes. But you cannot be separated from God and his love. You'll forever be a beneficiary of the love of God in Christ Jesus all the time at all times. So the question becomes, why did Paul point this out, right? Why is he saying, and why does he say it twice, right? He basically tells us the same things twice. And I believe it's because we are tempted to interpret our relationship with God through the filter of our circumstances. That's just human nature. Um, we, we, we tend to think um, because God is all-powerful and, and we can't see him, but we can see our circumstances so they can be powerful things and they can begin to shape how we feel and interpret how we think God thinks about us and feels towards us. We think, well, I can't believe this is happening to me. God must be really irritated with me. It must be because I did this and we think of something we did and that must be why this is happening. You know, this is not a new way of thinking. This, in the first century, in Jesus' day, common thought was, if you had a lot of money, man, God was, you were in good standing with God. And if you were poor, man, God must have been judging you. And that was just kind of the common thought in Jesus' day. And, of course, he comes in, he flips all that on its head. And it's, you know, a lot of poor people in particular that's running to follow him, common fishermen, things of that nature. But in that, that's why it was such a big deal when Jesus says, it's very difficult for a rich person to go to heaven. And everybody's like, what? And who can go to heaven, right? That's the people God loves the most. Look at their circumstances. And he's like, no, no, you're, you're completely missing the point. 
But that's human nature. Our human nature, and it always has been, is to think, well, if my circumstances are this, that, because God is sovereign and God is big, therefore, that must mean God feels this towards me. If I'm having a bad day, God must feel badly towards me. But Paul wants us to see that God's love for us is not associated with our circumstances. Uh, that it's not hindered by our circumstances. That in, no, in this fallen world that we live in, we're going to experience things like this. But these don't separate us from God's love. They don't, you don't interpret whether God loves you or not through what's happening to you. you know? But see, human nature is we tend to sometimes be more expressive of our love depending on circumstances. I'm learning this with kids, right? Uh, Cannon, who's six, right? And he, he's very, you know, he like, he like, you know, nothing that you like, a parent likes to hear more is like when your kid says, I love you, right? And our kids are just at that age that randomly sometimes they'll just say, hey, I love you, dad, or hey, I love you, mom. But I've noticed with Cannon that sometimes it in particularly comes out when you do something he really likes. So you spend a lot of time with him or you're playing something he likes or whatever, you get this, you know, and he says it other times, but boy, he really lays on the affection when, he, when things are going his way. And that's just human nature. That's just kind of the way we are, right? So you, anniversaries roll around and you go to, if you got social media, you go to Facebook and you got people, 35-page posts about how awesome my wife is. And sometimes I read those things, I say, I bet you didn't even speak to your wife last week, you know? But I'm just a cynic in me, right? But it's, it's, it's anniversary time, and right? So everybody, we, man, we lavish the praise, right? At certain times and other times. Sometimes it's kind of like they're fighting and they're arguing or whatever. Human nature is, man, when things feel good, man, we lavish the love. And when things aren't going as good, we reserve the love or the expression of the love. God's love's not like that. He's saying, listen, none of the circumstances in your life are affecting God's love towards you. He loves you the same when things are bad or when things are good. Christian, he loves you the same on your worst day and on your best day because his love for you is not based on your behavior or your circumstances. And it's not secured by that. It's secured by Jesus Christ. His love for you is is in Christ Jesus. And it's a perfect, unbreakable, unbending love. But God will love us by disciplining us. So sometimes our circumstances can be his hidden hand of love. But he's never going to stop loving you. But God will lovingly discipline us. Let me read to you from Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, 4 through 7. Listen to this about the love of God. Some of you know this passage. The writer of Hebrews says, In your struggle against sin, you you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. In other words, he's saying it can get... It can get worse. I mean, Jesus died on the cross. And he says in verse 5, he says, And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons, as, as children of God? And he quotes, once again, from the Old Testament, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves. And he chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Ryder goes on to point out that God's whole point in this is to make you holy because he knows that's what's best for you. And so for his glory and for your good, yes, he he will discipline you. And discipline is not pleasant, the, the writer of Hebrews says. He says, as long as it's painful, but it's for our good, just like it is with our kids, right? I don't, I don't like to, to discipline kids, but I, I have to discipline my kids because I don't want them to turn out to be like, you know, I don't know, bad people, right? So we discipline them. 
We want them to grow into responsible adults that love God and love neighbors. So we have to put discipline in their lives. And sometimes discipline looks like, oh, man, it's a discipline because you did something wrong and I need to, we need to correct that behavior. And sometimes discipline looks like, hey, you just need to clean your room, right? And it's the discipline of you just need to learn to kind of take care of yourself. And in the same way, God's discipline, sometimes it's a training discipline. Sometimes it's a corrective discipline, but it's never a loveless, pointless discipline. Never. Because we do this imperfectly with our kids, but God does it perfectly with his children. So don't be distracted by the noise of the world. If you are in Christ, God and his love for you and Christ's love for you is unbreakable. And it's not a sentimental love, right? Love you, man. I think good thoughts when I think about you. As I know, it's, it's an active love. When he says he loves, he means he, you can't, it's not just you can't be separated from God having positive feelings towards you. It's like, no, you can't be separated from his active love, actively working in your life. Romans 8, 28, love. God working for your good, for his glory at all times, bringing about his purposes in your life. You cannot be separated from that. You are secure if you're in Christ today in God's love for you. And if you're not in Christ today, that's the invitation. Listen, God so loved you that he gave his son for you. And so if you'll turn from your sin and embrace Christ as Lord and as Savior, man, that's the kind of relationship you can have with God, that of a father loving a child perfectly. The third security of the believer is I am secure in my victory through Christ. Go back up with me to verse 37. Asking about being separated from the love of Christ, he says, no, 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 no. In all these things, all these, the famines, the persecution, the sword, he says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. That's a very famous passage, right? You read that at face value, and it's absurd. It sounds absurd. It sounds ridiculous. More than conquerors from famine? From persecution, from the sword, from death, from these horrible things that have been listed? What do you mean more than conquerors? We've, I can imagine some first century Christians get a hold of this letter and think, I feel pretty conquered. What do you mean I'm more than a conqueror? He says, yes, it's through him who loved us, talking about Christ, because this is in the context of Jesus' unbreaking love for you. He says, it's through Christ who loved us. Uh, Jesus' work on the cross and the resurrection assures for us that we will experience ultimate Victory, even as he's going to say here, more than victory in the end and not defeat. So let me tell you what he means here when he says more than conquerors. Uh, that word, hypernikeo, okay, it's got the word hyper in it on the, on the front end. It means completely victorious. You might have heard it said super conquerors, right? When we think of the word hyper, we think hyped up like it's, you know, that's what he's saying here. It's like it's hyper victory. It's, it's more than victory. It's, it's super victory. You're a super conqueror through Christ. I love what one scholar said. He said this, it's a holy arrogance of victory in the might of Christ. I mean, just absurd confidence in what Jesus has accomplished. And Paul's point is that in this life, yes, we may look defeated. To the world, a persecuted Christian, for instance, in a dangerous part of the world, is not a super conqueror at all. To the world, they're losing. To the persecutor, they're losing. But then Paul says, we're more than conquerors. You say, well, how is this possible? Well, you have to put it in context. Romans 8, 28, we read last week. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. It's that little phrase, all things, that makes it possible for Paul to say something like this when connected with the work of Christ. 
See, we are more than conquerors because we are assured that we will, be, we will more than come out okay in the end. We will rather, God will rather work all things for our good. In other words, God's going to find a way to turn our mess favorably towards us. I can't say it as well as this guy did. Let me read to you a quote from John Popper. Listen closely. Defining what does it mean to be more than a conqueror. Popper says this, a conqueror defeats his enemy. But one who is more than a conqueror subjugates his enemy. A conqueror nullifies the purpose of his enemy. One who is more than a conqueror makes the enemy serve his own purposes. A conqueror strikes down his foe. But one who is more than a conqueror makes his foe his slave. He goes on to quote 2 Corinthians 4.17 where Paul says, For this light and momentary affliction, the pain and suffering of this life, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So if you're in Christ today, you may lose a lot in this life, Paul says. Is what, you may lose a lot. You may suffer a lot. But you won't lose God, and God won't lose you. In fact, in the end, God will make all these things your servants. And that's, an incre- that's why you're more than a conqueror through Christ. It's not because you can go out and have everything go well for you today. That's, no. The point is, everything might go wrong, but in the end, God's promising it will go well. In the end, you're going to come out on top because Christ is on top and you're hidden with God in Christ. So if you're in Christ today, this security that you have should lead to a ab- complete abandonment of fear. Right? It should be fuel for living a life for God's glory and for the mission. Where, where should we not go with the gospel? Who should we not tell the gospel to? What neighbors should we not love? Why would we ever cower? Because this kind of security should breed a fearlessness in us, in us because there's nothing in all the universe that can take away from us what is most ultimate and most important. This is why the early church, man, with wild abandonment, abandonment took the gospel to places and were persecuted for it and this church spread like wildfires because they believe this stuff. And when you believe this, you'll live differently. You can't help but live differently. It's... If you don't know Christ today, this is what can be yours. This position before, secured position for God, before God, this secured, the love of God expressed in your life, this this ultimate, more than victorious outcome. All this can be yours in Christ Jesus because Jesus suffered what is ultimate. He took the ultimate suffering and dying for you on the cross, bearing God's wrath for you, bearing God's judgment, taking the payment for your sins, paying for your sins, and being raised from the dead in victory over all those things. When you trust what he did instead of what you can do, being a good person, doing the right stuff, joining a church, baptism, prayer, any good thing you can think of. When you say, I'm not going to trust being a good person. I'm going to trust that Jesus is the only good person, that he was righteous in my place, that he died in my place. And when you put all your weight and your faith on him and you're saved, all this is yours. All this is yours. This kind of security. But if we stand outside of Christ, there is no worse place to be that on the reverse side of God being for me and God being against because he's coming against my sin because I've declared war on God. You need to hide. You need to run in Christ. You need to run to Christ who bore that for you. So believer, share the gospel. Love your neighbor. 
be a fool for Christ. Who cares what the world says? Who cares what the world does? Who cares what may, may come against you? This is the ultimate outcome. You cannot be separated from Christ's love. Your position before God is secure, and your ultimate victory is in hand. Let's pray.